0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. There's so much that gets us out of fellowship these days, all you have to do is vote. So, or watch the evening news. So we'll give everybody a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you're ready to focus on the Word and get in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for all the many blessings that you give us each day. We focus so much on getting from place to place and getting done the things that have become so urgent that we often fail to stop and just reflect upon how much you give us, how much you've provided for us each and every day. Father, we thank you for all the logistical grace blessings that you've given us with our homes and our cars and everything that we have. And, Father, you've given us so much spiritually in this day and age that uh, it's easy for us to take it for granted. But, Father, we know that we are those to whom much is given, much is expected, and that we have a tremendous opportunity to advance in our spiritual life and to glorify you with everything we do. Now, Father, as we study these events in First Kings, we pray that our focus will be on you, your plan, how you work out your plan in history, and also on the human side as we see the ebb and flow of positive volition. We see the consequences of disobedience and the blessing that comes as a result of the uh, maturity of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Kings chapter 2, so let's just start off with a little orientation on our first slide here. We're going back to our chart. These are charts that I passed out when we first started, and I'm already revising them, changing them. That's the process of Bible study. As you go through in detail, I'm sure there will be uh, many more changes that I uh, develop as I adapt it to the results of my study. But we're in the first part of 1 Kings, which is still the period of the United Kingdom. United Kingdom began with the accession of of Saul to the throne. Saul reigned for 40 years, David reigned for 40 years, Solomon reigned for 40 years, and we are at the end of David's reign, two-thirds of the way through the United Monarchy at the absolute apex of... Israel's blessing, their greatest power, their greatest prosperity, uh, their greatest uh, expansion of property occurs under Solomon. But with that advance and despite all of the prosperity that God gives them, all the blessing, there's already that the seeds of arrogance and independence that are being sown. And by the time we come to the end of Solomon's Reign, God has already indicated that he is going to divide the kingdom and it will go into a period, a lengthy period of, of a divided monarchy where the the tribes are set over against one another and there will be a tremendous amount of apostasy, especially in the northern kingdom. The first part of 1 Kings from one one through eleven forty three covers the reign of Solomon approximately forty years from one one to two forty six we see the establishment of Solomon on the throne of David. This focuses on the Adonijah coup the uh, solomon's accession and enthronement david's death, and then various executions that occur and covered in the uh, in the latter part of 1 Kings chapter 2. When we come to chapter 3, we'll look at the rise of Solomon. God gives him a great stamp of approval and and a great evaluation at the beginning that he loved the Lord, which means he was obedient because in mosaic terms, if you love God, you obey God. And he loved the Lord with all his heart, and yet it is not long before compromise uh, seeps in, and so often we see that we all fail the prosperity test, and Solomon fails the prosperity test as we look at this initial section, the first eleven chapters, we see the <clears throat> Solomonic kingship, this first division, which we're still in from one one to two twelve We see the transfer of the kingdom from David to Solomon. In the first chapter was what we covered last time when David crowns Solomon. Uh, despite Adonijah's power grab, and then tonight we're going to look at the, at least the first 12 verses in chapter 2, where David gives his final challenge, his final uh, exhortation and advice to Solomon uh, just before uh, he dies, and his death is covered in verses 10 uh, through 12. Now the background for this, once again, is the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16 is your key passage. And there's three elements that God promises David, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Eternal house, kingdom, and throne will become as familiar to us as land seed and blessing. So we just just remember that eternal house, eternal kingdom, and eternal throne. But God has promised David that it will be Solomon who sits on his throne. It is Solomon who will succeed David, and it is Solomon who will be blessed, and Solomon who's going to have the privilege of building the temple, and that becomes a major part of what comes up in the uh, next section in Kings. Now we read in chapter 2, verse 1, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying... So here we have the report of his final uh, meeting, his final instructions, his final challenge to Solomon. This is when he's going to uh, give him spiritual advice, first and foremost to keep his focus on the Lord during the reign, that that's the most important priority, not only of any individual but of the ruler of God's people because this is still a theocratic kingdom because the human king serves under the reign of God and is signified by the fact that the the human king is anointed by a prophet. The word of God is the ultimate authority, not The king. So we see the circumstances here that, that David is going to, uh, take, recognizes he's going to die. Something we should all recognize. And he is taking the proper steps to take care of things, uh, before he dies. The advice that he gives is described in verses two through nine. Verses two through nine. It's a two-part advice. The first part deals with Solomon's relationship with God in verses 2 through 4. And the second part, verses 5 through 9, is going to deal with the practical matter of dealing with uh, treasonous rebels in the kingdom in order to solidify Solomon's reign. Now, when we get there, that's one of those uh, kind of odd situations. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it reminds me about of the end of the uh, first Godfather movie when the old Godfather dies and Michael Corleone takes over and there's this uh, massive uh, hit scene where he takes out all the in- enemies that they had been waiting on uh, beforehand. And it's something similar, but of course we have a spiritual emphasis here, and that is that all of these people that are going to be executed have all been, are all under the authority of the king, and they have all violated the Mosaic law and been worthy of execution during the time of David's reign. It's just that David didn't uh, have what it took to, to... execute them for whatever reason. We're not necessarily told in Scripture why he didn't, but he didn't. And so he gives instructions to uh, Solomon related to uh, dealing with those who present a danger to his reign and also dealing in grace with those who have been uh, kind to David in the past. So we come to the first uh, the, to the initial part in verses two through four, the spiritual aspect. And I want you to note that this, these three verses are heavily dependent on the Mosaic covenant. That's one thing to get across. You can't read these three verses without thinking how dependent they are on, on Deuteronomy. The w- key words all through here are words that you see again and again and again in Moses' final admonition to uh, the Israelites just before he died, as recorded in, in uh, Deuteronomy. So let me just read these three verses to you. David says, I go the way of all the earth. Command, be strong, therefore, prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, "...as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." So verse 4 is specifically dependent on the promise that God made to David, And verse 3 is focusing on the thrust of the Mosaic Covenant. So let's just look at that verse 2. David says, I'm going the way of all the earth. In other words, he recognizes that he is about to die, and this is what happens to every living creature, that we all die. And then he addresses himself to Solomon. He says, be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Now this word, uh, be strong, is his central admonition here. It's from the Hebrew word chazak, which means to be strong, to strengthen. And in contexts like this, it has the idea of courage. And in many passages, it's linked with courage. Be strong and of good courage, we read in in numerous passages. And so it emphasizes the aspect of not just physical strength or physical courage, but spiritual courage, the willingness to take a stand on God's word, as uh, Martin Luther did at the uh, Council of Worms, where he said uh, on this book, I take my stand, I can do no other, that the word of God is ultimate, final truth, and we're not going to violate it in any way. That is what David is challenging Solomon to do. To show yourself to be a man, literally in the Hebrew, not necessarily show yourself. That's the sense of the command. He says, Be strong, therefore, and be a man. Being a biblical man, gentlemen, is not related to success as it is in American culture. It's not related to concepts of, of machismo. It's not related to... Uh, concepts of athletic prowess, it is related to spiritual orientation to God. That is the number one priority to be a man and fulfill your obligations as a man in God's eyes, not in the eyes of the culture. The culture is always set up... Uh, extraneous priorities for both men and women. So he challenges Solomon to be a true man in the concept of biblical manhood, which puts the Bible first. And as a leader, the emphasis is on moral courage, which comes only from the knowledge of the law. And if you remember in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, the responsibility of the king under the guidance of the priest was to sit down daily and handwrite a copy, his own copy, of the law. And he was to do that on a daily basis. That forced him to think about what the Mosaic law said and to constantly be reminded of what the law said. And if that is true for kings of Israel then it should be true for any believer priest in the church age that we should take the time on a daily basis to read the Word, to be reminded of what God expects of us, what God has done in history, to be reminded of of uh, promises that God has made to us just to take that time to sort of orient our soul each day to the eternal truths of God's Word. And you can do that reading His Word and then listening to a tape or whatever we want to call them today, listen to a, a MP3 recording, uh, 15, 20 minutes. You know, a lot of times, especially men who've gone through seminars, say, man, I don't have time to get a tape in every day. Listen for 10 minutes a day. And the same thing with a lot of us. We're busy, we're traveling, you have a lot to do, but take that time to listen to 10, 15 minutes a day in the morning, maybe again in the evening, just to orient your thinking uh, to the Word. Deuteronomy 11 verse 8 uses the same kind of terminology. Therefore, you shall keep... Now, that's another word we're going to look at. It's the Hebrew word shemar. And we'll look at that in just a second back in uh, uh, 1 Kings 2. Therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong. See, strength comes from obedience to the word. It starts with obedience to the word. It doesn't matter how much physical strength you have, how much physical courage you have. It doesn't matter how successful you are in business. It doesn't matter how successful you are in whatever it is you love to do. What matters is your orientation to God's Word. If you keep God's Word, you focus on His Word and apply it in your life, that is what builds spiritual strength in the soul and so Moses told the Israelites, If you keep every commandment so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. In Deuteronomy 31:23, you see the same verbiage when he uh, commissions Joshua at the time of Moses' death. He, he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage. For you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Our strength is in the Lord. Ephesians 6, 10 and following talks about uh, spiritual warfare that we're in, which is the church-age counterpart to the physical warfare, the holy war of Israel going in to take the land, and we are to be strong in the Lord. It's the same concept, and that strength only comes from the Word of God. Uh, then we have Joshua one nine. Uh, have I not commanded you? This is Moses. Um, again, this is a rehearsal of what Moses had said to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So this terminology comes directly out of the Mosaic Law. Uh, David goes on in 1 Kings 2.3 to challenge uh, Solomon a little more precisely. He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God. And what's involved in that? Well, first of all, to walk in his ways, which means to keep his statutes. He's basically saying the same thing about four different ways. Keep the charge of the Lord. Walk in his ways. Walking is a metaphor for living your life. It's not talking about physically walking. And you find the same thing in the New Testament when you have the uh, verb peripateo. It is basically a metaphor for how you how somebody lives their life, how they conduct their life. To walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimony. Four different words there: statutes, commandments, ordinances, and testimony summarize all of the mandates, the six hundred and thirteen mandates in the Mosaic Law. Uh, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now let's look at a couple of key words in there. First key word is shamar. Shamar means to watch, to keep, to preserve, to guard, to be careful, uh, to watch over something, to watch carefully over something, to be on one's guard. Shamar is a word that has a broad general sense in terms of guarding or watching or even observing to a more narrow sense having to do with someone who is being very diligent in keeping track of something, involving uh, a lot of work, an intentional conscious effort to make sure that something is a priority and is carried out. And a cognate to the verb shamar is the noun uh, mishmeret and mishmeret has the idea of a char- mandate or a charge a duty that is assigned a responsibility that someone has a commission that is given so david is saying there is a commission a divine commission given to you solomon as the ruler you are to be obedient you are to be careful to keep the commandments of the Lord, the mandate of the Lord, which is summarized then in the uh, following verbs, to walk in His way. And this, as I said, has the idea of His general, uh, general lifestyle, how He uh, carries out His life and what He, uh, what He does in terms of His priorities and in terms of all of His all of his activities. We see the same verbiage when we get into passages like Deuteronomy 5.33, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. What's the result? The result is that you may live, that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Now, at the end of verse 3, David told Solomon that you do this, you obey the Lord, keep walk in his ways, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And this is the same idea that we see again and again in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.6, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. The word there for keep is shamar. And the word for walk is the same. It's uh, halach, which means to go, to walk. And it's used metaphorically to just conduct your life in his ways and to fear him. And another passage, Deuteronomy 11.22, For if if you carefully keep all these commandments... Which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. So these ideas, walking, carefully keeping, obeying, guarding, all this, these commands are fine, you find again and again and again throughout the Mosaic law. So when David says this to Solomon, he is, he is crafting what he is saying in a specific way to connect the role of the king as being established by the law of the Mosaic law as the covenant between God and man, and that the duties and the responsibilities of the king are defined and described by God. Solomon can't just do whatever he wants to do. If he does, there's the threat of divine discipline, the threat of punishment on the nation, which is what will happen. But if he is obedient, then there will be blessing uh, blessing for the nation. Now we go back to 1 Kings verse 4, 2-4. The result is, is given, that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, now this is what it was promised to David in the Davidic covenant. If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of David. So in his admonition to Solomon, his exhortation to Solomon, he's connecting what he's doing on the throne to the Mosaic law, which is the covenant, the constitution of the land of Israel is given by God, and to the uh, gracious covenant, the royal grant covenant that God gave to David, that his descendants would have an eternal uh, eternal presence on the throne but of course what happens is they're disobedient and there won't be one on the throne of Israel for a time being but eventually uh that will be that will be fulfilled now we go to Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 33 one more time let me go back to that and that command Moses said to Israel, you shall walk in the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. When you, as a believer, and this principle is true, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, when you are conducting your life according to the protocol of God, when you are carrying out all the various mandates that God has for the Christian life, which means you keeping short accounts, you're confessing your sin, when, when you commit sin, you're staying in fellowship, you're making the study and knowledge of the Word of God and the application of the Word of God a high priority, you're utilizing all of the... Um, all the different mechanics of the Christian life, the faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of your eternal destiny, your personal love for God, your love for all mankind, your uh, occupation with Christ and uh, inner happiness, when all of those are in place and you continue to live in light of those, the result is that God blesses us now, in the Old Testament law. And in the Old Testament, when when God is physically present, he's also dealing with Israel in very concrete terms. And so the blessings are, are very physical. They're very concrete and material. But that's how they were defined in the Mosaic Law. go back to Deuteronomy 28, which we've covered several times. Remember, God promises if you're obedient, there'll be rain, the crops will be abundant, there will be uh, prosperity in the land, physical, material prosperity. If you're disobedient, there will not be these things. I will take them away from you. Now, that's not true for today. Because we're not living under the Mosaic law. That was, that uh, the law was related to them living in the land. The blessings and cursings were all land oriented. We're living in the church age. The blessings that God has for us are often spiritual. We may not have material prosperity for various reasons, but we have prosperity of the soul, and that's really what is talked about in the New Testament. You, today, you run into all these charlatans on TV teaching a prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel, name and claim it gospel. There's all kinds of names uh, by which it goes, and it has led them down the path of heresy and away from the Word of God where they think that God is nothing more than some kind of cosmic slot machine or cosmic uh, Coke machine. I had one lady tell me that one time at a class. College of Biblical Studies years ago, God's like a big Coke machine. If I do the right thing, like put a quarter in the machine, I know exactly what I'll get. I'll get a Coke. You know, you you do what you do, and God will automatically give you what He's going to give you. It's very very mechanistic. It led, of course, to a number of uh, problems and scandals. Continues among the televangelists and. One of whom was Jim Baker, and, of course, there's lots of jokes around about Jim Baker and Tammy Faye back in the late 80s. And um, But one of the things I appreciate about him, as much as I still disagree with a lot of his charismatic theology, is when he was sent to prison, he took the time to study Greek. I don't know how much Greek he got, maybe a year of Greek or two years of Greek. But he studied Greek, and he came out of prison, and I saw him on Larry King. And his whole facade had changed. His whole demeanor changed. He was no longer this uh, sort of uh, pompous showman on TV. He just seemed like an everyday individual. And, he's, and uh, Larry King asked him, well, what about all of this that you taught about uh, prosperity? And he said, well, Larry, I was wrong. So when I was in prison, I had the opportunity to study the Greek and discovered that when it talked about prosperity, it was talking about soul prosperity and not material prosperity. And so I just, I based all of my ministry on false teaching. Now that's what I, that that's what the Bible calls repentance. You know, he wasn't weeping. He wasn't uh, uh, showing a lot of remorse. He just said, you know, I was wrong. I studied, studied had some time to study and learned that I just, I was wrong, and I and he wrote a book called "I Was Wrong," and I appreciated that. He was wrong about a lot more things than he said he was wrong about, but that's another story. That wasn't that wasn't the main thing there. But he, uh, you know, I appreciate that. There are very few people who have the honesty and the humility to just come out and say, "I taught this, and now I'm teach Then I've got some time to study it, and I was wrong. So when Deuteronomy talks about prosperity here, uh, it uses a Word that again doesn't necessarily mean uh, material prosperity. It's the the verb is sakal, and in the hifil, it has the idea of really of acting with insight, to be prudent, to give insight, to teach, to prosper, to consider something, to ponder, to understand, to act prudently, and to act with devotion in fact it's translated as discretion in first chronicles 22 12 so we have the idea that if you walk in all the ways of the lord it will be well or prosperous some translations have it it's really this idea of of prudence and the and wisdom that is the application of doctrine in the life now that takes us over to 1 Chronicles 22. The reason we go to 1 Chronicles 22 is because this is where David is also giving some wisdom and counsel to Solomon. It doesn't appear as if it's the same time. It's an earlier time than probably 1 Kings 1, and we've looked at this before. David, again, is, is admonishing uh, Solomon. He's preparing Solomon for what will uh, come to pass. He says, uh, Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. So his prayer is that God would give Solomon wisdom and understanding now those are two important words and we're going to spend a lot of time studying them in the coming weeks but let me just sort of introduce the concept the word for wisdom is Chokmah and Chokmah I'm not putting it up on the board it's uh, you can translate you transliterate C-H-O-K-M-A-H and it has the idea of skill skill it's not wisdom in the sense of abstract intellectual philosophizing which you get from the greeks it's a more concrete idea that comes out of uh the out of a hebrew background jewish background when aholiab and bezalel are designing and building the furniture for the ark and they're involved with the the metallurgy and the jewelry and all of the work that that the the detail work, the filigree work, the making of the clothing for the high priest. Scripture says that God gave them chokhmah, gave them skill. See, chokhmah is the ability to take that the raw information, what we would just call the facts, the data of Bible doctrine, the truths of Scripture that the Holy Spirit stores in our soul, and then to apply them to the issues of life, in such a way that our lives become a work of art or skill. And that's what wisdom is. It's not just application of doctrine. It is what develops over time and allows God the Holy Spirit to create an eternal work of art and skill in your life in my life that glorifies Him. It goes far beyond the Greek concept of epinosis, which is just knowledge in the soul that's, uh, available for application. Wisdom is that skillful application of epinosis. The other word that's used there, which we'll put up here in a minute, is the word bina for understanding and discernment, the ability to make decisions. Now that first, that word for understanding is from the uh, root bin or binah in some contexts, uh, it has the idea of understanding, comprehension, discernment, and righteous action. So may the Lord give you wisdom, that is the skill to apply what you know, because he's been well trained. He He's been well trained by David. And understanding, understanding has to do with making decisions. A lot of times the decisions that you and I make in life are not always decisions between the that which is good and that which is evil. So about that which is good and that which is better. And a lot of us fail at that because we we perhaps don't have high enough standards or we think, well, what will it matter? Uh, this isn't a bad choice, but it may not be the best choice. It may not be the best use of our time. It may not be the best use of our money. It may not be the best use of our talents and understand and uh, our our talents and spiritual gifts. So understanding has to do with that ability to discern, and again, that comes with practice and it comes with the application of doctrine over time. So David's prayer, of course, is going to be answered. As we get into the third chapter, God is going to approach Solomon and ask him what he wants above all things, and Solomon says, "I, I want wisdom." And so we're going to see that God gives him uh, special wisdom, and that this prayer is answered. So David says, "Only may the Lord God, Lord give you wisdom and understanding, and give you charge concerning Israel." That that's the purpose. Wisdom and understanding aren't ends in themselves; it's an end to obeying the covenant, being obedient to what God said uh, for the nation. Now, let me back up, uh, go to verse 13. We have the word prosper again. Uh, then you will prosper. And it's the Hebrew word salach, meaning to prosper, to succeed, to be victorious. That is, to carry out your job, your task, your co- covenantly defined role as the king. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill. And the Hebrew word there is shamar, to keep. If you take care to keep. The statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong. There's our chazak again, and of good courage. Do not fear or be dismayed. So we see how again and again the, the the mandate, the exhortation that Solomon gives to, I mean, that David gives to Solomon, is related to the Mosaic covenant. Now you can't look at the second part and divorce it from the first part. You can't take your 20th century sentiments that have unfortunately been too affected by the uh, bleeding heart liberal values of our culture and apply that to the next four verses. The next four verses, verses 5, five through 9, are built on the same spiritual absolutes as the first three verses. David doesn't say, okay, make the word of God your highest priority. He doesn't remind Solomon again and again the importance of walking consistently with the Mosaic Law and then, then turn around and say, okay, now go kill all your enemies and, and, and start a bloodbath and just go murder everybody. See, that's what happens when you approach the text from a human viewpoint perspective that's been influenced by the false values of modern culture. You get taught all of this garbage. It comes across the media and and various television shows and everything else which talk about how terrible violence is and taking the life of anybody even in a judicial context. And David is operating just as much in obedience to the Mosaic law and the command of God and his relationship to God in verses uh, 5 through 9 as he is in verses 2 through 4. What we see in verses 5 through 9 is wisdom. It is the skillful application of the law to the realities of the conspiracies, the rebellions, the arrogance that surrounds the throne of Israel in order to secure the throne. You notice David doesn't sit back and say, well, Solomon, you just have to trust God. He'll take care of it. You know, they may be out there and they may be. Uh, conspiring against you, and they may be trying to take the throne away from you, but, you know, it's not right for you to to uh, treat them in violence, so just pray about it, and God will take care of it. Now, he recognizes an important principle here, and that is that God has already told them how to take care of these kinds of things in the Mosaic Law. And so David is instructing Solomon that within the framework of the Mosaic Law, he needs to kill the rebels and to remove them because the most dangerous thing that you can have in any culture or society are the people who are not oriented to authority, either God's authority or the authority of the leader in whatever the field is. And here Solomon represents God's established and ordained king, and yet you have various people who have demonstrated historically their inability to submit to the authority of the king. This is coming from David, remember. David is the man who was or uh, was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel while Saul was still king. And David knew that no matter how, disobedient, no matter how rebellious, no matter how uh, vindictive Saul was toward him, it never authorized him to lift a finger against Saul. No matter how wrong Saul was, it never excused David to also rebel against Saul. And when he was in the... uh, Near the springs of Engedi, out in the wilderness of Judah, and David and his men are hiding in one of the caves. It was time for Saul to go in, and uh, as as the saying goes, to go where the king goes alone and um, to uh, relieve himself for those of you who didn't catch it. And he goes back into the cave and he. Uh, gets involved in doing what his business back in the cave, and he's not very far from David. In fact, he's so close to David that David could have easily run his sword through Saul. Saul ended the whole problem. Saul would no longer be chasing him. He could take the throne. He could go to Israel. But he knew that God did not authorize him to do that. It is never right to overthrow a divinely established authority no matter how evil they are. When uh, Paul writes in in Romans chapter 13 that the government is the minister of God for righteousness, he's writing this at the time when one of the most heinous, uh, tyrannical uh, governments of all of history is in operation under Nero in Rome. Because to rebel against an authority means that you are claiming omniscience. You know all the facts and all the data. You know what is going to happen, and you know that absolutely the right thing to do is to take out this authority and that you have the right to be the judge over this authority, which is a legally constituted authority over you. And that is exactly the mentality that Satan had in the fall. Satan said, I don't think God can do it right. I have a better idea. And this is exactly what happens time you are rebellious against any authority over you, whether it's children to parents, workers to employers, whether it's wives to husbands, whether it's husbands to uh, God, who is the authority over them. Whenever you are acting in rebellion, as uh, Samuel told Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It is demonism whenever we act in rebellion. And David understood this, so all he did was he just reached out and just cut off a corner of Saul's robe so that after Saul went outside, David then walked out and waved it in the air and said, See, I could have taken your life, but I'm not really not your enemy. You're your own worst enemy, Saul. God's going to take you out in his time, and I'm not going to be the one to do it. David understood authority orientation. When you understand authority orientation, you can have genuine humility, and you can never, never have grace orientation if you're in rebellion against the divinely established authority over you. It will never happen. Now, this is why God has such harsh penalties in the Mosaic Law for those who are rebellious, against authority and that is and the ultimate authority of course is law in the governing of the land and the individuals that are dealt with here because of their rebellion against the king are in violation of the of law and they are demonstrating their inability to orient and have demonstrated their inability to orient to authority and in every case what they're oriented to is their own uh, selfish arrogant desires and uh fulfilling the desires of their own sin nature. So we look at the first one in verse 5. He he smoothly transitions from do everything that the Lord told you to do. Moreover, you need to deal with Joab first of all. Moreover, he says, you know also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, And what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Now, Solomon is the one who learned a lesson here. Over in Ecclesiastes, he said, there's a time for war and a time for peace. And in the time of war, it is legitimate to take the life of your enemy. But five minutes after peace is declared, you take the life of the same person, and it's murder. And you have to learn how to think within that reality. And when you don't know how to think within that reality, then you're going to be defeated. It just occurred to me now, I wish I'd thought about it before. Before class, but there was a tremendous quote in this recent series that um, was on PBS on World War II. And uh, the first, the second series starts off at the beginning of 1940, well, actually toward the end of 1943, when the Americans have landed in North Africa and they've had to learn to fight. And they just get uh, their butts kicked at um, Kasserine Pass and it takes them a long time. To get it together and to develop the right mental attitude to um, to kill. And one of the um, somebody's got to help me with this. One of the great war correspondents was uh, yeah Ernie Pyle, and he he made this comment, and I'm just going to roughly paraphrase it made this comment by the time they had defeated the Germans in North Africa. He said these these boys who had grown up, church-going young men, believing it was wrong to kill, wrong to take the life of another human being, had finally come to accept the fact that there was a legitimate basis for taking the life of another human being in war, and not only did they accept it, but they knew that they had to be skilled at doing it. And that's the key to winning the war. That was a, and the way he said it was a lot better than I did, but it was a great principle. You have to learn this. And see, when you grow up in a culture that has a false set of values, that tries to take path, take bad translations of the Old Testament from the Ten Commandments, "Thou shalt not kill." Actually, in the Hebrew, it's "ratsach," meaning to murder. It doesn't ever say, thou shalt not kill. In fact, there's eight or nine different Hebrew words for taking the life of someone. Several ways are legitimate. It is legitimate to take the life of an individual in an execution because they have committed a capital offense. It is legitimate to take the life of the enemy in combat. And all these things are are validated both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, the state has the right of the power of the sword. What does a sword do? A sword takes life. That's when the the power of the state is summarized in the most uh, extreme responsibility we can think of, and that is the power of life and death. And so the state has that right. It has been delegated by God since the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. In fact, next time you see a rainbow, just remember that that's a reminder that not only is God never going to destroy the earth by water again, but that the mandate to take the life of a human being who has taken someone else's life illegitimately uh, is valid, that capital punishment is still, is still in effect. Now, as we look at verse 5, we realize that Joab needs to be executed. This is exactly what what David is saying. He defines his guilt in verse 5 that in a time of peace he has committed murder. He has taken his own vengeance rather than letting it be handled through the legitimate process. So in verse 6 he says, Therefore, do according to your Wisdom, Hochmah. see, it's application of doctrine, application of the Mosaic law. Do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Now, what exactly did Joab do? Well, let's just review a few things, go back into 2 Samuel and pick up a couple of the things that he did. The name Joab means Yahweh is his father. So he comes out of a family that at least at a at a nominal sense uh values a relationship with God, and this is true because he is the uh son of Zariah. Zariah is uh, David's sister, so Joab is David's uh, nephew, according to Second 2 Samuel 2.13 and two thirteen and second Samuel ten seven. The first time we see Joab is in 2 Samuel chapter 2. So let's just flip back there to 2 Samuel chapter 2. It's almost hard to figure out everything that's happening in 1 Kings 2 if you don't understand 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel begins after the death of Saul. David is now recognized as king by only his own tribe. Only the tribe of Judah recognizes him as king, and there is now a state of civil war among the tribes of Israel. And this is going to be intensified because Abner, who's a major player in this whole story, who is Saul's uncle and was his commander-in-chief, commander of the army, uh, Abner, uh, in verse 8 of chapter 2, Abner is going to manipulate Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and we don't know a whole lot about ish but he just seems to be someone who's very malleable and very much under the control of Abner. Uh, he manipulates uh, ish to become uh, the king, and he makes him over king, we read, over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all of Israel. So let me put a map up here to give you a little orientation as to the area we're talking about. The, the blue on the left is the Mediterranean. The large light blue to the south in the middle is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. The smaller blue in the north is the Sea of Galilee. We, the blue line between them is the Jordan River. Uh, Jerusalem is located... Uh, right here just to the west of the northern uh, tip of the Dead Sea. And the area from Jerusalem to the south is the area of the tribe of Judah. The area uh, north up by the Dead Sea, this area later on is is the area of Galilee. It is part of the northern, what will be part of the northern kingdom. And the area across the Jordan around the Yarmouk River here to the uh, to the east of the Sea of Galilee, is today known as the Golan Heights, and back then it was known as Gilead, and on the northern part, Bashan. So this is the area of Gilead, and he talks about the fact that he makes him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, this is trans uh, Transjordan, over Jezreel. Jezreel is the valley of Jezreel running uh, from northwest to southwest here, uh, here you have the Carmel Ridge over here uh, to this side, which is where you have Megiddo. Uh, Mount Gilboa is down here at the southeast end. This is the, Je, the area of Jezreel, also known as the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Ezralon, the Valley of Armageddon. And over Ephraim, Ephraim is this, the center part here, which is mostly Samaria, known as Samaria today, the West Bank. And then to the south of that is the area of Benjamin. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So this northern area tends to be closely allied to Benjamin, and so they're willing to follow Ishbosheth. So you have several of the tribal groups in the north allied against Judah in the south, and we learn that David is going to reign from Hebron, which is down here in the south, and he's going to reign from there for seven years before he finally uh, solidifies the country and has victory in this, in this civil war. So this war goes on for a couple of years. And in verse 12 we read, Now Abner the son of Naran, the servants of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, went out from Hanaim to Gibeon. Gibeon is somewhere up here, uh, to the southwest of, of Shechem, I believe. It's not on the map. Maybe it's on this map. No, not on that map either. Here's Mahanaim over here in the Transjordan, so this means they're, tra- they're transversing the Jordan coming into the central highlands of, uh, of Israel. Joab, the son of Zerai and the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side, one on the other. And they have David's men are lined up on one side. Saul's men are lined up in the other, and they. Abner says to Job, let the young men now arise and compete before us. What does that remind you of? Well, if you've got an education, it ought to remind you of what was going on outside of Troy when the Greeks came over and were trying to recapture Helen, and what happens? You have the Trojans send out their champion, and the... Uh, Greeks send out their champion, they do this champion warfare. That's the same kind of thing we see with, with David and Goliath. That was because the, the Philistines had brought this kind of practice in and they were uh, had picked it up with the Greeks. It was a common practice among the Mediterranean people at, at that particular time. So that's what they're going to do is have, have a little ch- tr- uh, uh, c- combat by champion here. And so they have this b- fight between the champions, and each one grabs his opponent by the head, verse 16, and thrust his sword into the opponent's side. So they all fall down dead. And it's it's a draw. It's a very violent scene, and nobody nobody wins. And so everybody else gets up, and they have this huge melee, and they all start fighting one another, and it looks like... Uh, the uh, Saul's side is going to lose Abner's side is going to lose so Abner decides that, that uh, discretion is a better part of valor and he runs away can live to fight another day so he runs off and he's pursued by one of the three sons of Zariah verse 18 we have these three brothers Joab, Abishai and Azahel and Azahel we're told was a uh, fast runner he's fleet of foot as a wild gazelle and he starts chasing Abner. And he's not going to be distracted by anything, and he's gaining on him. And Abner looks back over his shoulder, sees that it's Azahel, and tries to warn him off. And Azahel doesn't respond, and several times Abner tries to dissuade him, turn back, I don't want to kill you, you know, stay away. Finally, he refer, refuses to to do that, and so Abner pulls up his spear. And I get the impression from this verse he just Thrusts his spear backward as Azahel is coming up on him and he just, in a very, very swift move, uh, kills, uh, Azahel. And he falls down dead on the spot. Now, Joab and Abishai come up and these brothers are close and they discover that their brother has been killed and now they are very angry with Abner. But Abner, Abner gets away. Now Abner goes back and Abner's really running a power play here because he's, he's playing kingmaker. Ishbosheth is young. Ishbosheth was not at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Uh, let's go back to this other slide here. Mount Gilboa is where, is this, in this area right here. That's the area where Saul, uh, did battle with the Philistines. The Philistines defeated them. And Jonathan was killed, and Saul committed suicide this was but but Ishbosheth wasn't there for some reason he was uh, was left behind. Maybe he was too young, maybe he wasn't ready for combat. You get the idea that he may have been too young. The text doesn't say, but Abner just really has him uh, wrapped around his finger so from the Battle of Gibeon, uh, Abner escapes and then and the next, time, the next thing we want to look at is in uh, chapter three, verse six. Now, as while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So Abner has the power, but then he's going to be confronted by Ishbosheth in verse seven. Now, I want you to carefully read this. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. So Ish-bosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now there's a certain ambiguity here. Did Abner rape Rizpah? It doesn't really say. It just says he's accused of it. Now, ish may just be his daddy's son going around falsely accusing everybody for whatever his paranoia has led him to believe they've been doing, which is typically what Saul did. There's nothing in the text to indicate whether or not this was actually true of Abner. However, Abner becomes extremely angry about this, so angry that ish has accused him of this that it seems to be a justifiable anger because now he says, okay, I've had it with you. I'm going to go with David. So that kind of a shift seems to be more the attitude of someone who's been uh, unjustly accused than someone who truly has a guilty conscience. If he had been guilty of uh, sexual relations with uh, Rizpah, it would have been part of the same scenario we're going to see a little later on in First uh, Kings 2, it's... By taking the wife of the king, you are basically exerting uh, monarchical privilege. You're making a claim to the throne. Uh, Adonijah is going to do that when he uh, when he wants to take uh, uh, David's concubine Abijah. Uh, what's her name? Um, Abishag, not Abijah. Abishag as uh, as his concubine. It's the same kind of thing. He wants to lay claim to the throne. So, verse nine. Uh, Nine and following, he is going to make the shift to give his loyalty uh, to David. Verse 12, Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So he is now going to bring the northern tribes to David to unite the kingdom, which is exactly what he does, and he comes down and he makes peace with with David. And when he does this, uh, they, they come together in verse 21, we see, we see that, uh, on verse 20, verse 21, they have a huge feast. And in verse 21, at the last of the verse, it says, So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. But Joab wasn't there. So when Joab shows up, Joab finds that David has made peace with Abner and he is livid because he is writing a a vendetta to kill Abner for the murder of Azahel, which is exactly what he does. And when we get down into uh, verses 27 uh, to 30, we see where Abner returns to Hebron. Joab takes him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever, the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's household. But he doesn't do anything about it. He's committed murder, but David doesn't have whatever it is to to stop Joab and to uh, execute him. So he's going to leave it to Solomon, but... uh, uh, Joab is guilty of murder here, and he's guilty of murder uh, one other time. And David truly mourns for Abner, and he knows there's something evil in Joab. But well, we'll come back and look at the second murder from uh, Joab, second murder uh Amasa, in, when we come back next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see the outworking of your word, the importance of the application of doctrine, even in situations that are not pleasant to us. Nevertheless, it calls for a consistent application of your word, for that is wisdom. We pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.